Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. We believe in prayer. And maybe this is not the right thing to do, but I want it's just on my heart that I want to pray for it is. Damar Hamlin right, right, right now. Um, I'm going to do it out loud. I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to bow my head, and I'm just going to pray for him. Um, God, we come to you in these moments that we don't understand, that are hard. Uh, because we believe that your God and coming to you and praying to you um, has impact. We're, we're sad, we're angry, um, and we want answers, but some things are unanswerable. We just want to pray, truly come to you and pray for strength for Damar, for healing for Damar, for comfort for Damar, to be with his family, to give them peace. If we didn't believe that prayer didn't work, we wouldn't ask this of you, God. Um, I believe in prayer. We believe in prayer. We lift up Damar Hamlin's name in your name. Amen. 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 Welcome to Trending on this first Friday, February 3rd. Throwing it back to ESPN analyst Don Orlovsky praying for Damar Hamlin live on national television. We saw and we have since talked about those images of the players huddled together on the field, kneeling in prayer, bowing their heads after Hamlin collapsed on the field, went into cardiac arrest, and then was taken by ambulance to the hospital. And these massive men, some in tears, in a moment of spontaneous prayer and and countless souls joining with them in solidarity, whether it was in the stands or in our homes. The fact that his heart stopped twice on the field and a third time in the ambulance really does make you stop and consider that his life is a miracle. Eddie McClintock is the actor-director of a film called Miracle at Manchester, and he will join us this hour on the program to tell us about another miracle, the people, the plot, the message of this new movie, and also later in the show, biblical archaeologist and Holy Land guide George Stu Stephan will join us from Jerusalem to talk about evidence of miracles in the power of prayer. My name is Brooke Taylor, so happy to be back with you again as guest host while Timory is on maternity leave. I had a chance actually to connect with her today, and I was just smiling ear to ear, remembering those newborn days. She will hopefully, God willing, actually be back next week. Just been such an honor to fill in and looking forward to today's program. And you know, that story of Damar Hamlin reminds us that so much of what we think we can control is an illusion. We have an illusion of control. Father Jacques Philippe talks about this. He says, we have a, a natural revulsion for situations we can't control. But the fact is that the situations that really make us grow are precisely the ones 
that we can't control the outcome. It humbles us and it reminds us of the mysterious, magnanimous ways of God because God uses everything. In our suffering, we encounter the Paschal mystery. We meet him in the cross. And in the miracles, we see the evidence of what Jesus preached, that God is willing to intervene in people's lives and and take away their suffering. And that it's a gift. It's not always a guarantee that it will happen that way, but it is a favor of grace. And even just this week, Father John Hollowell, you may have heard of this story. It went viral. He is a priest in the Archdiocese of Annapolis. In 2020, on the Feast of Our Lady of Lourdes, he was diagnosed with a brain tumor and had gone to the Mayo Clinic, was given a very bleak prognosis, and decided that he would offer his suffering for the victims of clergy abuse. Well, he's been undergoing chemotherapy, getting treatment, and then recently returned from Lourdes, where medically speaking, there is no explanation for this spontaneous healing that occurred. And he made a YouTube video about it. If we have time in this hour, I want to play a little bit of it, but you can also find it on YouTube as well. And that brings us back to this movie that we're talking about here on Trending Today. It depicts the real events in the life of another young athlete, which demonstrates the power of prayer and the reality of miracles. In June of 2015, high school sophomore Bryson Newman was diagnosed with medulloblastoma. It's a very aggressive, it's a rare, fast-growing brain cancer. And one month after undergoing emergency surgery, they remove the tumor. Doctors discover three more growing in his brain. Bryson was a student at Cathedral Catholic in San Diego, California. The entire community then did what we do best as Catholics, mobilized in prayer. And days after thousands of students at Cathedral Catholic prayed over Newman, doctors said his brain tumor and cancer miraculously disappeared. And that is the basis of this new film. So before we introduce actor-director Eddie McClintock and get his take on the film, I want you to hear a bit of the trailer and the story of the miracle at Manchester. Take a listen. He pretty much spent the whole night in the ER. I got a kid who was here earlier. Okay. Dad's over-concerned. I know my son, okay? And, and there's definitely something wrong with him. You're a healthy kid. You'll be fine. They said he passed out at school. I do think you need to prepare yourself. Some kids. This is serious. This is my fight song. Take back my life song. Prove I'm alright. I just want them to get it out. And I'm asking you to please, please be with my son. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm gonna die. Prayed for a miracle. I might only have one match. That's what we need to do. But I can make an explosion. But trust in God. But you trust in God. Like a miracle. There's no such thing as miracles, honey. Listen, the kingdom of God is never meant to be a spectator sport. The only way you win a game is by actually getting on the field and fighting. And this is our field of faith. This is our moment to believe that what we read is actually real, that his word is more real than what we feel. 
Amen. That is the miracle at Manchester. Eddie McClintock, director, actor of the film, with us on Trending among his many film and television roles. He is perhaps best known as Peter Latimer on Sci-Fi Network's Warehouse 13. Also had a recurring role on the show Bones. Recently played the father of Emilio Estevez in The Mighty Ducks. And after a long day of travel is with us now. Welcome to the show, Eddie. Hi, Burke. Thank you so much for having me. You are welcome. And it's funny because you're joining us not from L.A., uh, but your home state in Ohio, which is where I happen to be and where the movie is set to premiere this weekend. Is that right? Yes, ma'am. Um, at the uh, the Palace Theater in downtown Camp. Right. And near the Pro Football Hall of Fame there and also your hometown. That's where you're from. Yes, ma'am. Um, I'm, uh, you know, there is a di- di- differentiation of. Uh, I, I'm from North Canton, Ohio, but uh, you know, so I was a, I was <laughs> a North true. Canton Viking, and then there's the Bulldogs. So we were we were rivals, but uh, you know, in in the end, we're all uh, you know from Ohio. That's that's the way I've always looked at it. That's right, but that is an important distinction. You're right, and I want to talk about this movie because it incorporates all of that. It incorporates sports and family and faith. The miracle at Manchester. I guess my first question is, what is the story behind the title? Because some might hear it and think of the soccer team Manchester United, but I know this deals with the particular landmark of where that healing took place, right? Yeah, there is. Um, well, the uh, the main funding. Uh, for the film came from a gentleman named uh, Doug Manchester. And he is, I believe, I hope I'm not not uh, misspeaking, but I think he's the guy behind Chick-fil-A. So he, he, um, he had made films before and, and he was approached about making this film and at at a, at a, a much lower budget and, and basically said, you know, if you guys can make a good film, for the money you say you can, you know, have at it. So he, um, he also, uh, he also built um, Cathedral Catholic and funded mm. uh, all the buildings and the construction at Cathedral Catholic. So um, that's, I, I'm pretty sure, I, I don't know any other reason why it would be Miracle at Manchester other than um, to kind of uh, tip your hat to, to the, uh, the the guy who made it all possible. Well, it makes sense because I heard the athletic field is Manchester. And if he funded it, then, you know, that makes sense. And it all ties together in the story of Bryson and the just trailer there in the plot, we heard the basis of this miracle. And when you heard this film was being made, how did you become involved? You play the dad of Bryson and then you also are the director. Uh, yes, ma'am. Um, you know, I met Dean Kane uh, several years ago because, you know, he was, of course, played Superman in Lois and Clark and, and a lot of other things. And, and, um, and I uh, met him. We do conventions uh, around the country together and we became buddies. And, um, and I knew he was involved in these films. And so I called him up and I said, you know, hey, man, you know, I'd love to be involved somehow. So uh, he put me in contact with Jason Campbell, who is uh, the uh, owner operator of JC Films, which is the production company that, that uh, made uh, Miracle at Manchester. And, and I had 
I had been working with Jason on some films and I taught some acting classes for him, uh, which I love to do. I love working with young actors that are, that are trying to figure it out. And, and, um, and he came to me one day and just said, you know, you're so, you're so great with actors. How would you like to direct one of these films? And, you know, I was, I was a little scared. I'd never done it. I, I, I felt that I, I could do it, but you know, there's always that, <laughs> there's always that doubt that one has to try something completely new. But I, I, um, I, I, I went into it with a full heart. You know, my, my dad who, uh, was, was, had been getting sick, you know, he, uh, he was very excited about the prospect of me going ahead and, and directing a film. And he was, he encouraged me all along and, and so, uh, you know, I, I did what my dad taught me to do growing up is to, you know, put my nose in there and keep my chin up and do the best I could. So that, that's what I went into it with. We're speaking with Eddie McClintock, who is actor, director of the new film, The Miracle at Manchester. And it's about a real life miracle. Tell us a little bit about Bryson, athletic young man. He played baseball and football, went to Cathedral Catholic in San Diego. And then in 2015, he starts to get headaches. So tell us what happens after that. Yeah, well, first of all, I'll tell you that uh, during production of the film, I spent, um, you know, days and day weeks with Bryson and Rick both. Um, uh, Rick played the, is the father who I play. And so, you know, I, I sat and listened to them and listened to their stories and um, so that I could get a feel of the, the their relationship, uh, which is really strong. Um, you know, I mean, Rick Newman is so dedicated to his boy and um, and it really struck a chord with me because, you know, my dad, I had the same relationship with my dad and my, and my dad had just had just died um, a few weeks before we started production on the film. And so um, seeing how much Rick loved his boy and, and even even in the darkest moments, because, as you said, you know, the, the tumors, uh, even after they went in and operated, they they. Uh, they came back and, um, you know, in his private times, Rick, um, may have shown some vulnerability and fear, but he never, he never showed that to his son. He was always very positive with his boy and, and said, look, we're, we're going to get through this together with the help of God and prayer. And, uh, we're not going to look back. And, and that was really inspiring for me to, to be able to spend time with them um, Bryson has turned out to be a, a great kid. I mean, I, he was already a, a great kid, but I, I didn't know him then, obviously. But, you know, he's in school and um, in college and doing well. And and um, it, it was really uh, it, it was really one of the things that that inspired me through the through the making of the film. And it, and it helped guide me in the way I wanted this uh, film to be um seen uh, by the public and, and the message that we were trying to convey. Well, he's given such a bleak prognosis with this brain cancer that's aggressive and fast moving and just 
such a low survivability. And then there's this image, it's a photo, which I believe is almost kind of the zoomed in, re-imaged of, of the poster, The Miracle at Manchester. And it is in the stands, a complete sea of red shirts with hands raised in prayer in, you know, the stadium and the bleachers there over Bryson, which I think is about 1800 people, fellow students and, and faculty and community. And Bryson is in the middle wearing a white shirt. And there, as they raise their hands in prayer over him, I had seen an interview where he said he felt a sensation of warmth during that moment. But then the timeline is at the next scan he goes and that brain cancer inexplicably and miraculously is gone. And, and still today he remains cancer free. Yeah. I mean, I guess we're kind of, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of giving up the ghost when it comes to, to the plot of the film uh, a little, but you know, it, it's still, I don't think it takes away from, from the message, but yeah, it, I, it, they, his dad, they, they were supposed to take him down to Florida for some uh, kind of experimental procedure. And, um, and uh, so his dad took him to the stadium as a surprise before they left. And his entire school had shown up for him and they prayed over him. And, um, and you know, the, the next day, or maybe it was a couple days later, the whole team of doctors were looking at his scans and not only were the tumors gone, but the, um, the, the tissue around the tumors uh, was healing. And they said it was inexplicable. I mean, you know, the science and the doctors couldn't explain it. And, you know, and I've talked to a lot of people um, because the, the thing about this film is, you know, it doesn't, doesn't beat you over the head with with dogma it, it it's you know it but it does have very strong faith-based fundamentals and 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 i think that it's important uh to to just let people know that hey it's okay to have faith it's okay if you need to pray and talk to to god and and um you know i think it, a lot of you know, religion gets a in this day and age you know it gets a bad name and and, uh, and and unfortunately, and and I, this this was a message to the people of faith or the people that weren't sure or not that you know it's okay to believe what you want to believe, and it, 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 if you want to believe that it's a coincidence, that's okay too. But you know the people that had faith, they went in there, they prayed over this young man, and and inevitably he was able to continue to live his life and. Uh, so when people walk out of the theater and they see this film, I, I think they'll feel inspired, you know, and if they're feeling down uh, when they walked in or unsure of the path of their life, I think this will give them, you know, inspiration. And, and I feel like that's what we need, you know, in film today, you know, to give people some hope. And it's there. It's just telling that story. And every day here on Relevant Radio, we hear incredible true life stories. And like you said, it's backed by by science and things that you can't explain. And we know, but it's encouraging to see these stories being told and the the reality of them. And, and for you to take this project on is a blessing for all of us. And I'm sorry, I just should have said a spoiler alert. So thank you for gracefully uh, working with that. The movie is The Miracle at Manchester. We only have a few minutes, but I have to mention this before we wrap 
wrap up because sure. of the personal element that you talked about with your dad and, and you talked about Dean Kane And he said, when I was reading his experience of the film that he co-stars, when he was watching you shoot these tough scenes, that it got very emotional for you. He said it was tough. The emotion you see on Eddie, and again, you play the dad of Bryson in the film, he said it is a lot of real stuff. And as you said, you were very close to your dad. You had just lost him. How much of that really came out in the experience of this movie? Well, as an actor, you know, uh, people think acting is like making stuff up. And, and for me personally, and I think a lot of actors, acting is really just telling the truth. It's telling the truth about your own life and, and then and then applying it to the words and the material that you're using. So, I mean, what better way to, to make people feel something than, than to be actually experiencing it yourself as an actor? So, you know, as I said, my father had just died. My dad was my best friend and my hero. And, uh, you know, the last four, four days at hospice were the toughest days of my life. They were excruciating, and um, there were. There's a scene where uh, Rick go. You know, he finds out that Bryson has to go for this emergency surgery, and 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 Rick has to keep a brave face, or at least try to keep a brave face, and, and normalize as much as possible this extraordinarily abnormal situation. And uh, you know, I I guess I don't know. I would. I call it I was having some flashbacks because I had just had this experience with my own with my own father trying to tell him, you know, and, and keep him laughing and, and keep his spirits up in the face of death, you know. And um, so, again, I, I guess uh, there, there definitely were some real moments there. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's the kind of stuff that, I take it as a gift, you know, I got to experience that with my father and then I get to, I get to express that emotion and those feelings through my art. And then mm. that, that makes it all worth it to me as an actor and, it, and as a human being. And for us too, I think those experiences really do cut through because they are real. They are the realest, those uh, emotions and the sorrow and the joy. And we just thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing Bryson's story. And we need more work like this. Just, you know, again, hearing the calls here at Relevant Radio that God continues to work in remarkable ways. Uh, there are many more stories to tell. So we, uh, we hope that you know, we will just continue to hear more from you. And and we'll pray for you too. I know you're on your own faith journey. Now the movie, Miracle at Manchester.com, that's the website. And I know that there's still um, negotiations for distribution. So it's not streaming yet. Now, if you are in Ohio, you happen to be in the Midwest or Ohio, you can see the Miracle at Manchester. It premieres Saturday and Sunday at Canton Palace Theater. But across the nation, is that the best way to get maybe on the update list? Is miracleatmanchester.com the official website? I, I would think that that's probably going to have the most information um, regarding where and when you'll be able to see the film from your own home state or you know, wherever you are in the world, yeah. And I know you can order uh, the DVD directly from there as well, right? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Okay, and you can see the trailer too. Eddie McClintock, God bless you. Thank you so much for your work, and thank you for your time and sharing your story. 
Uh, Brooke, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, just want to say a big hi to everybody out there. And I hope you're having a, a, a good, happy life and evening. And, and thank you for having me on the show. Thank you so much. Miracle at Manchester.com. That's the website. And that's the name of the movie. Check it out there. Eddie McClintock. Thank you so much. It's Brooke Taylor in for Timory. And next is archaeologist, historian, Holy Land guy, George Stu Stefan. He will join us talking about miracles this hour. That's the name of the film. That's the theme we're going to continue. The life of Jesus Christ, the soil, the structures, the land itself, what it reveals when we come back. Uh, we'll cover that with George Sue Stefan. My name is Brooke Taylor. You're listening to Trending here on Relevant Radio. Stay with us. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. The vast majority of the miracles were never miracles which took place in the inner secret places of people's lives, but in what might be called the physical world, where they could be verified scientifically. Our Lord never performed a miracle unless there were witnesses present. When he healed the leper, there was a great multitude following him. In the healing of the centurion's servant, he did not even go where the servant was dying. When he raised Peter's mother-in-law from her sickbed, the apostles and others were present. Our Lord never went up into a mountain to perform some miracle alone with no person being present, and then come out and say that he had done it. His works were accomplished before the eyes of multitudes of people, and that is why none of the miracles of our blessed Lord were ever actually denied, not even his resurrection. That is the unmistakable voice, of course, of the Venerable Fulton J. Sheen talking about miracles, the miracles of Christ, our theme on this first Friday dedicated to the Sacred Heart. You are listening to Trending. Welcome back to the program. My name is Brooke Taylor, in for Timory, who is on maternity leave. Please keep her and her family in your prayers and all families with new babies, certainly for energy and sleep for sure. And my next guest is an archaeologist, historian, a guide in the Holy Land. And as a pilgrimage leader, I was blessed to be led by him along with our spiritual director, Father John Michael Paul, during our last trip to the Holy Land. And so I consider this kind of a mini mystical pilgrimage for all of us. We don't even have to pack our bags to be able to connect with George Sue Stefan joining us now from Jerusalem. Welcome, George. Thank you, Brooke. Good morning. Good morning from Jerusalem. <laughs> yeah, it's good morning from Jerusalem. Welcome to the show. You know, we've been talking about miracles this hour, and you have spent your life studying the soil, the stones, the structures in places like Cana and Capernaum mm -hmm. and Tagba and Bethany, you know, the tomb of Lazarus. And I know mm -hmm. from an excavation standpoint, miracles can be difficult to prove, but maybe what is your perspective on miracles then and now? Well, <laughs> Brooke, that's that's an excellent question. But actually, let let me start with, uh, of course, the Book of Psalms, uh, seventy-seven, uh, verse eleven. I guess it says, uh, "I have a photographic memory." You know that. <laughs> I, I will mm, I will remember I the deeds of the Lord. Yes, your 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 miracles or wonders of old, I will remember. 
So this, this beautiful verse tells us, of course, how in Old Testament, uh, people remembered, of course, the, the miracles of God. So in Old Testament, it was always like for specific things. Like if you go to the first book of Kings, chapter 18, we'll see that God shut the skies for three and a half years. And then Elijah interferes, and then the rain starts pouring down in Israel, and then no more miracles. But in the New Testament, it's completely different. It's continuous. It is continuous. We go to Cana, lots of miracles. We go, we go to uh, a multiplication of fish in the loaves, you know, uh, uh, walking on water, uh, uh, calming, calming the storms, lots of miracles, one after the other, one after the other. And when we talk about miracles, listen, <laughs> I'm guiding people for 23 years now, and I call it a ministry. I've seen lots of miracles happening, you know, yes. nowadays, and I read about it in the New Testament. And let me tell you something, the New Testament our book, our gospel, is the only one that has lots of witnesses. There were the 12 disciples following the Lord, saying lots of the things, and he had his inner circle to show his divinity in other miracles, like Peter, James, and John. So these witnesses, of course, the Lord didn't, didn't just come out of the blue and, and, and he took his witnesses with him or his disciples with him. No, he was carrying a commandment of the Old Testament from the book of Deuteronomy, that when you go to court... You need to have your two or three witnesses with him. So he had two and three witnesses and even 12 witnesses with him. Okay, so and, and we still see these miracles uh, in Jerusalem, especially when we witness the, uh, the Easter, uh, of course, uh, light. Okay, uh, during, of course, Saturday of the, uh, the Holy Fire, when a pillar of fire, fire comes out yeah. from the tomb of the Lord. So this is, this is very, very important, of course. And uh, as I told you, in ministry, I've seen lots of the pilgrims change their lives. These are big miracles when they come to the land of Emmanuel and witness, of course, the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of the Lord. Amen. And it is transformative. You say on your tours that if, if archaeology is fact, the Bible is real. And I wanted to ask you, because as you mentioned, over two decades and really your entire life there in the Holy Land, you have studied as a faithful son of Christ and a historian and archaeologist, and maybe just one clincher, something that convinced you beyond all reasonable doubt that something in the Bible happened. I know it's so many things, but maybe just one thing that would convince the cynic that it happened how it happened, where it happened, as it says. Uh, one example of that, maybe. <clears throat> okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to be uh, short over here, but I'm happy that you still remember that sentence. If archaeology is facts, the Bible is the truth. You know, when they discovered Capernaum around the Sea of Galilee, they could never, the archaeologists, they could never determine how the houses looked like until they went to scriptures. And then when they studied scriptures, they understood how they lowered the crippled man through the roof when when that when that uh, that house was busy with lots of disciples, lots of people, and Jesus in in the center. Of course, they couldn't go into the entrance, so they dug in the roof and they lowered him all the way down into that place. That reminds me of something. Uh, when I was a kid, when I was nine years old, you know, my parents' house was exactly like a two-minute walk away from the Basilica of Resurrection. Of course, some of the people know it as the uh, Holy Sepulchre Church. I used to walk all the way on the roof, jump on the roof, go into a broken window, and then play hide-and-seek at the tomb of the Lord, and then in a couple of niches next to the tomb of the Lord. Brooke, for two years, I've been playing over there, not knowing that these were tombs. I was just a kid. And then when I was caught uh, by the priest and the police over there when they wanted to close down that uh, basilica or the Basilica of Resurrection, the priest over there taught me 
that these tombs are the tombs of Nicodemus and Joseph Armitage. Try to imagine that you're sleeping in these tombs, and then after 20 years, you start teaching about them, and then you hang out with a, with a priest that was the best archaeologist, of course, in, in, in the area over here. So all these things connected together, and then you start seeing underground uh, artifacts and floors that are not open to the public, that are off limits, and then all people go over there and study, of course, all these things and the writings. It's an eye-opener. So we know that if archaeology is facts, and yes, it's facts, the Bible is the truth. It's about faith. It's all about faith, and faith can move mountains. Amen. George Sue Stefan is with us. He is a Holy Land guide, a historian, an archaeologist. Do you have a question about a biblical site, a specific location, the life of Christ, really throughout mm-hmm. salvation history? Give us a call, one 914 9149 The studio lines are open. I also wanted to ask you about an incident that just happened earlier this week. We saw the, the custody of the Holy Land had shared this. It was in the news that there was an incident in which someone vandalized a statue of Christ in the Church of the Flagellation. And maybe you could clear up what happened and what's fake news. I heard heard it was a U.S. tourist, and they were able to arrest the perpetrator. And, and we hear this, you know, the vandalism that may happen at these holy sites in the Holy Land. Can you tell us maybe an update and, and what's happened there? Yeah, of course. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's an incident that happened inside the Old City at the second station at the uh, Chapel of the Flagellation, of course, and Condemnation. At the place uh, where Pontius Pilate sat once upon a time, we call it the Antonia Fortress, and that's the place where we start uh, the way of the cross, of course, with the pilgrims, and every Good Friday, for ages and centuries, we've been practicing, of course, this thing from the side, and it appears that a religious Jew, uh, when we say a religious Jew, of course, in Jerusalem, we can differentiate a religious Jew from a secular Jew. Of course, sideburns, a yarmulke on his head, and then uh, he speaks excellent English, so it appears that he is or he was uh, an American an American Jew who goes in there and then uh, he climbs inside or next to the altar and then there's a, one of the most beautiful statues in there that was donated by uh, by the Spanish, uh, by a guy called Salvador Valle, of course, in the uh, 1920s. So he brought it down and then he started breaking it and then he wanted to take a hammer outside of his bag and he wanted to, uh, of course, to, to break... He already did, actually, unfortunately, already did. And he was, uh, surprisingly, he was shouting in English uh, from uh, a verse from Exodus chapter 20. Okay, you have not to, you are not allowed to worship any, uh, of course, uh, the stone or, you know, all these kind of things about anti, anti-worshipping, like images and things. It's, it doesn't make sense because he's, he's like uh, mistranslating Exodus chapter 20. And of course, he was arrested by the uh, by the guard at the place, and uh, then they called in the police. And then now he's at the uh, police station. They say that he has uh, some problems, mental problems, of course. So the thing the thing is that I have a Jewish friend, and I asked him, why do I why do I apply Exodus twenty on us? Don't you go down to the Wailing Wall, and you believe that God resides inside that wall? You know what I mean when, when people tuck their prayers inside that wall. Right. So. <laughs> So, yeah, unfortunately, right. um, yeah, unfortunately, this happened. So, you you know that the, uh, everywhere there are radicals, and uh, it's it's not good. It's not good to have radicals and you know start stepping on others' uh, beliefs. 
Well, at the same time, one thing initially in preparing for our next journey to the Holy Land, which for me will be at the end of March, one of the questions, this will be my fourth time, each time we go back is, is it safe? And as a Christian pilgrim, I've always felt safe. Of course, it is kind of the capstone of all the religions and the Abrahamic mm -hmm. religions. And and we've seen also recently in the news some things, some skirmishes. So maybe you could speak to that, having lived there also your whole life, and the safety for the pilgrims and how that's maintained and what that looks like. Trust me, it is, I would say, always like uh, it's it's safest than any other place in the world. Like when we talk about 2016 or 2017, uh, if you look at Chicago, there were more than 300 cases of stabbing in Chicago and in Jerusalem there was nothing. You see, an accident can occur in Colorado or in Alaska. Uh, people get injured and you are safe in Jerusalem. Or it, 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 it might happen in Jerusalem as well. So I think it's the safest place on earth. And uh, hopefully we pray for peace over here. And lots of the places, of course, that the pilgrims go to, there's no harm for them. You know, everyone wants to live, Jews, Muslims, Christians. But they would welcome, of course, uh, the pilgrims because it's a source of income. So it is, it is safe. Thank you. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and want to take some calls. One triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. We are speaking with George Sue Stefan, archaeologist, historian, Holy Land guide. He's with us in Jerusalem. Is it two thirty in the morning? Is it that early right there in Jerusalem? It's it's, it's twenty to three. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh my. <laughs> I don't think I realized that. Thank you. Thank you for, for staying up. And maybe you can take a little nap during the break. It'll just be a few minutes. We will be. When, when we come back, I want to ask about the incredible story of Godfrey of Bullion, the first ruler of the kingdom of Jerusalem, what he did when they tried to crown him, I think, as a lesson in humility that has reverberated through the centuries. I don't know if you know the story, but George hopefully will fill us in on that, as well as the presentation of Jesus in the temple. Going to fill us in a little bit more on that. We just celebrated that feast day. Back with more when we come back here on Trending on Relevant Radio and the app. My name is Brooke Taylor in for Timory. Stay with us. This February 24th, our show sponsor, Colby Academy, is hosting a virtual college fair where high school students can hear from top Catholic colleges and universities from around the world. Register at RelevantRadio.com slash Colby. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. That's the number, one 914 Do you have a question about a biblical site, specific locations in the life of Christ or Old Testament all through salvation history? George Sue Stephan is with us now from Jerusalem, and God bless him because it's about 2.46 in the morning, and he is a historian, archaeologist, Holy Land guide, and we've been talking about miracles. We've been talking about holy sites in the life of Christ. George, I wanted to ask about Godfrey of Bouillon, and before we get to him, but we'll still stay in the theme of the Crusades, I want to take a call from Dennis. He's on the line and had a question about Richard the Lionheart. Are you with us, Dennis? Hi, Dennis. To a, hi. I'm, You're on with George. My call. Sure. I was just listening to a program on a different station, and they were talking about the Third Crusade. Richard the Lionheart was one of the leaders. 
And the program said it was kind of a failure, but the program also said that they did gain access to all the holy Christian sites of Jerusalem. So can't um, wanted to see if George thought that could be considered a partial victory crusade rather than a loss. Great question. It is. Uh, there's there's an excellent book that was written about the uh, Crusader period, that is well known as the uh, uh, the Dream of the Tomb, written by Robert Payne, P A Y N E, and it depicts exactly, of course, what happens uh, since 1095 all the way up till, uh, of course, the other periods of the Crusades. But uh, of course, uh, I would say I would say it was not a failure. It was a victory. But of course, who writes who writes history? It's always the victor, isn't it? Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It's true. Uh, another well-known, we've heard of Richard the Lionheart, name is, is Godfrey of Bouillon, the first ruler of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. And uh, an amazing, I think, story of, of what happened when they tried to crown him king. Can you take us into what he did? Of course. Uh, let, let me start from 1095. Of course, maybe lots of the people know about uh, not lots of the people know about the story when Urban II started calling, of course, the uh, Europeans and the Christians in Europe to help their brothers and sisters in the Holy Land. Just to be clear about this, but there were so many crusades that never made it to the land over here, like the Children Crusade, the Women Crusade, until they were all united in uh, 1098, of course, under the French leadership or the Belgian leadership, Godfrey de Bouillon when they came all the way, of course, towards uh, the Holy Land. And then Godfrey de Bouillon was supposed to be crowned as the King of Jerusalem at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, but he takes the crown off. And then uh, there's one of the traditions in the, uh, that, that says that he knelt at the washing stone or the unction stone at the Basilica of Resurrection. Of course, the entrance was uh, completely different than the entrance from the Byzantine period, of course, because of the uh, mass destruction that happened in Jerusalem. And then he puts, uh, that's, that's very unique over here. That point over here is that historians tell us that he put his big sword, his golden sword that had lots of pearls exactly on the washing stone. And then he was not crowned as the king of Jerusalem, but he called himself the advocate of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre or the keeper of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and uh, Resurrection Basilica. And that's very important for us because until nowadays, who opens the church? It's the Muslim who opens it. When the Crusades lost in 1187, when they lost the war, of course, a Muslim opens the church and closes the church. Until nowadays, imagine from 1187 up till nowadays. So the thing is that, let me go back a little bit to Godfrey de Bouillon, and his sword was kept at the sacristy of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre until three or four years ago, when it was taken to France to be renovated, and then it'll be coming back again to my parish, uh, Saint Savior of the New Gate in the Old City of Jerusalem. Well, that's okay. Way, that's big was, news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and he was. He was. But by the way, he was. Uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, Bruce. Uh, he was. He was buried exactly. His tomb was exactly at the Chapel of Adam. When you go in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, it's to the right. It's exactly below Calcutta or Calvary. But then, at one of the nights. Uh, the church is closed, of course. The Greek Orthodox removed his body from under that place or from the tomb, and now no one knows where his body is. So his body was removed as other bodies of the Crusades were removed from the Basilica of Resurrection. But didn't he also refuse to be crowned because he said there is only one king, and that is Christ? Yeah, and you, because as he you said mentioned. Christ is, is my king, yes. 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, one, of, one of the reasons, absolutely, he said, uh, the only king is Jesus Christ, so I refuse to be king. Wow. Um, I'm looking at our time, and I want to make sure also that we get to the presentation of Jesus in the temple, 40 days after the Feast of the Nativity. You had posted mm-hmm. a photo of the southern steps in Jerusalem, uh, ostensibly to that temple. What can you tell us about that historical site and that, that event in the life of Christ? Well, that's 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 uh, a very nice place for me, of course. And uh, I remember when I was a kid, I used to jump on these stairs, not knowing what happened over there. But every time I look at it, uh, even if I go in there or just see it from a distance, uh, that's the place where the book of Luke tells us, of course, that uh, the Holy Family, after coming from Nazareth, broke. And, you know, coming from Nazareth all the way up to Bethlehem or up to Jerusalem, it'll take us or take them around uh, six-day walking. Just try to imagine Mary pregnant, and then Luke talks about the Annunciation. Luke talks about the birth of the Lord, and then all at once he jumps into the book of Leviticus chapter 12 that, that talks about every Jewish woman giving birth, of course, to a boy. She would wait around 33 days plus seven days, of course. That would be 40 days until... She takes the son and go all the way up to the temple. That was a Jewish tradition. And then all at once, they walk on these stairs that are still visible until nowadays in Jerusalem. You see, the distance between Bethlehem and Jerusalem is five miles. And that's a very important thing. You know, sometime later we'll talk about it because it proves the authenticity of, of course, the Lord being the Lamb of God. Uh, We'll talk about it later on, maybe. (laughs) So the thing is that they walked from Bethlehem all the way down into the Valley of Gehenna. And then from the Valley of Gehenna, they pass, of course, the city of David, David the king that nowadays we know about the excavations over there. And then they went up these uneven stairs to go into the temple. And guess what? A man over there called Simeon, of course, there's lots of the tradition that say that he was an old man because scriptures tell us that uh, he would never die until he sees the salvation of the Lord. And it reminds me when, uh, when, when, when Jesus was presented at the temple, he was given to the prophet Simeon. It reminds me of baptism. You know, we always take our kids, of course, to be baptized, and then you deliver your kid or you give your kid to a priest. Sometimes you, don't, you do not know, and then he raises that kid high in the sky. And that's what Simeon did. Okay, yes. so that, 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 that piece over there is so, is so beautiful. Even it reminds me of an old Coptic. You know, the Copts come from Egypt, and they say yes. that they follow St. Mark. And um, it, it, it brings us to that old tradition that says Simeon was a very old man who did not pass away, and Coptic tradition tells us that he even lived in the year 250 before Christ, and he witnessed the translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it's only tradition. Okay, but then they say that he is the father of Hillel, who was the father of Gamliel, who was the teacher of St. Paul. And guess what? Gamliel used to teach, used to teach all the rabbis and all the Jewish people exactly on these stairs that uh, the Blessed Mother and Joseph walked on with, of course, the child Jesus to, to be presented at the temple. And let me tell you something, that photo proved that I presented or that I put on my Facebook that, that, that Jesus was carried when he was a baby, when he was lost, when he was 12 years old. He had to go into the temple on these stairs. Okay, but that was the entrance for the poor people. How do you know that they were poor? Because the book of Leviticus say that you need to present, of course, uh, a lamb. If you cannot afford it, 
what do you do? Two-thirds are lost, yes? And Mary and Joseph took two-thirds are lost, so we know that they were a poor family. So the thing is that on these stairs exactly, guess what? John 7 happened over there when the Lord says, uh, I'm the living water. Guess what? John 8, uh, when they brought him that adulterous woman, of course, and then he started uh, uh, writing on the floor exactly on the stairs that would lead to presentation. Of course, John chapter 9, since we talked about miracles, uh, he spat on the floor, he put it on the eyes of the blind man, he made saliva, and then he put it on the eyes of the blind man, he told him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Okay, Acts chapter 2, Brooke, where, where Peter, of course, baptized the 3,000. And let me tell you something, on these stairs, exactly where, where the Lord was presented, where he played, where he did lots of miracles, Neil Armstrong stood over there, and he said, I'm more excited than stepping on the moon. Okay, mm. so, so these things, yes. that's an wow. archaeological dig over there, and these stairs date from like 200 years before Jesus Christ. It was the teachings, always Jesus sat over there, taught over there, and you see in Matthew 24, he leaves the temple, that area, and he goes up to the top of Mount of Olives, and he started the end of days teaching. So presentation was so important over there, and guess what? I think it's an overshadow of, of crucifixion, because the prophet Simeon says, It'll be, it'll be a sign for lots of the people, of course, to go up or down. Okay, so going up to Calvary, so it is the cross, it is crucifixion. Right. And it reminds me of right. John chapter 1, this is the Lamb of God. Okay, what John said about, of course, Jesus Christ. Wow. George Sue Stephan, archaeologist, historian, Holy Land guide, and it's exciting because you it's like these firecrackers going off, and they connect, and they click, and these pieces coming together, and we are almost out of time. We just have a few short minutes, and as we wrap up, I just think it's very evident in listening to you, the zeal of your own heart, and, and I've always observed that in, in going there to the Holy Land, is the faith of the men, and I guess I just want to ask that aspect for you. Is it something that you were born with, just this great piety, or, uh, you know, what, I guess, word can you say to the men that just are seeking and searching for that hunger that, that very much you contain this beautiful deposit of faith. Thank you. Thank you. I uh, appreciate it, Brooke. But the thing is that uh, it, is, it is a ministry for me. I believe that if I have 30 or 20 or uh, even, even one person who comes to the Holy Land and then he goes back home and then he starts talking about what's happening over here, about the fifth gospel. Uh, you know, I'm not into politics or anything else. So I, I believe that if, if that man or that woman goes back home and they start talking about the fifth gospel, the land of Emmanuel, what's happening over here. So we're doing lots of things for our faith and faith moves this mountain and we need it. Okay, nowadays we are, we are a minority. Look at us. The numbers are really dropping very quickly. So as brothers and sisters, so... We need, we need to be together. We need to help each other. And what, what, what moves me a lot is that when we pray the Lord's Prayer together, the Lord made us one family under one umbrella. And that moves me a lot when we say, Our Father who art in heaven. I looked in all religions, Brooke, and I found out that the only religion in the world that prays for the others before praying for yourself is Christendom through our Savior, through the blood of our Lord. Okay, and there are lots of evidence that shows that God so loved the world that he sent his only son for us, for me, for you, for everyone. So that moves me a lot. Every time I go into the church or the Basilica of Resurrection, I cannot but go down on my knees and thank God that he made me, of course, lead pilgrims and Christians because we're mistakenly people call us 
Okay, uh, the, uh, uh, the people of the book. We're not the people of the book. We're the people of the word. And that word is full of love. Yeah. God bless you. Thank you. Again, I know that it's almost 3 a.m. And that is an act of love for you to be here, to get up early and to share so much in just the short time that you did. Thank you, George, Sue, Steph. And I hope we can have you on again. Historian, archaeologist, guide in the Holy Land. Thank you also to my guest this hour, Eddie McClintock, director, actor in a new film called The Miracle of Manchester. And that was a big theme today, talking about miracles and certainly what a meditation as we go into the rosary, the family rosary uh, across America to meditate on those mysteries. Thank you to Jim, Patrick Alog. My name is Brooke Taylor. God bless you. Have a great weekend.